welcome back to A Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. I am your host, Ian Prize. This week, we introduce the Prog Rockers Prog Rockers, King Crimson, and take you through their genre-defining albums, 1969's In the Court of the Crimson King, and In the Wake of Poseidon. Hello, welcome to A Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. I am your host, Ian Prize, and today we are talking King Crimson. So, in the summer of 1967, guitarist Robert Fripp joined with the Giles Brothers to form a band, Giles, Giles, and Fripp. But it broke up after only one album. So by 1969, guitarist Robert Fripp recruited a new band comprising Ian McDonald on keyboard, Michael Giles on drums, lyricist Peter Sinfeld, and singer and prog rock heartthrob Greg Lake, and christened them King Crimson. Their virtuosic playing and complex music, unlikely as it may seem now, created a buzz, and they were quickly signed to an album contract and would go on to open for the Rolling Stones in Hyde Park that summer. They quickly went into the studio and, after a false start, recorded a hit record with admirers in Jimi Hendrix, Pete Townsend, Steve Hackett, and the band Yes. However, this incarnation of the band would only last one album as the stress of touring would destroy them. Robert Fripp still had a record contract, however, so he would assemble a patchwork of musicians to record the follow-up in the wake of Poseidon. Both albums would raise the stakes in terms of musical performance, and both would add a dark and creepy streak to the groovy world of psychedelic fantasy that was in vogue at the time. Add in their extended jazzy solos and complicated song structures, and you've got yourself some prog rock. So, here we are now, putting the prog into prog rock. My introduction to the progiest of all prog rock was through Yes, but once I was in, In the Court of the Crimson King is at the top of every greatest prog album list ever, and it absolutely didn't disappoint. I appreciated it as a masterpiece instantly, but I thought the follow-up in The Wake Up Side and took the bits I liked and took them even further. Now, both albums are in a dead heat, but King Crimson still has the power to amaze and frustrate, so I'm happy we've arrived at them today. So, to discuss King Crimson with me today, I'm joined by <laughs> President Cuse, Ed Thomas. Hello. Vice President Vermillion, Ryan Robison. Hello there. And Colonel Mustard himself, Brian Gann. G'day. So, today we are talking about King Crimson's debut album and their sophomore follow-up in the Court of the Crimson King and then in the Wake of Poseidon. So, before we start, I'm going to tell you where the name King Crimson comes from. So, the name King Crimson was first used in the 1638 play by Christopher Marlowe, The Legend of Dr. Faustus. So, Dr. Faustus has conjured Mephistopheles to learn the cosmic order behind all nature. And he's dissatisfied with the deal he's made. So he is sitting in his study, and Mephistopheles comes to him. So, dear Dr. Faustus, are you dissatisfied with our bargain? What knowledge hath I gained? Dark light? Great small? What more have you taught me? But, my dear doctor, all concepts are vestments made of the same fabric. Ah, but these are only words, great deceiver. 
Oh, you wretched mortal. Man was never meant to understand the concepts behind these words. I affixed my name to your dread contract such that I would learn how jazz, <laughs> classical music, and rock would blend together so perfectly. But did I not melt your face, bitch? Oh, how unhappy is the man with the Crimson King for a teacher. And actually, the name was just made up by Peter Sinfeld. So that's where King Crimson got their name. Now let's talk about their sweet, sweet music. Uh, we will start with our expert in residence, Ryan. Tell me how you came to this album and what your initial thoughts are about it. Oh, boy. If I'm the resident expert, we're in trouble. Um, <laughs> I think this actually goes all the way back to, to high school. I think this is one of, the, uh, one of the albums that just happened to be in the CD player of your car on repeat, usually for a couple weeks. Oh. And that, uh, that sweet, jazzy, mathy, almost... I'm not going to dunk on this album at all because I genuinely love it, but uh, somewhat initially hard to digest uh, fusion of what they were up to man I, I think that's I think that's what, where it all began for me oh yeah so Brian how did you feel about this album and how'd you come to it I, I think you know Ryan and Ian I think compared to you two I was not as into King Crimson as like yes and Pink Floyd back in the day um, but I, I do like it I think it's it's King Crimson in general is a little bit too jazzy to me. I read somewhere, and this is always stuck in my head, that prog rock represents moving away from blues-based rock to, to jazz-based rock, and this you can really, uh, really feel that. I think King Crimson has a lot of like highs and lows. There's some songs I really like um, and some songs I really dislike, um, and we can talk about those more specifically. But um, there are some bangers on In the Wake of Poseidon and In the Court of the Crimson King. But yeah, I'm digging it. I feel like these are two great albums to get into. I mean, they are probably King Crimson's most accessible albums, and they're just great to start off the story of Prague. And with that, uh, Ed, how how did you feel about this album and its follow-up? Uh, so for me, um, you know, I, I knew a little bit about Fripp from the guitar world. You know, he's... he's um, you know, well known for being a crazy good guitarist. Um, I know that Hendrix once hearing the band, you know, shook his hand and said, "This is the best best group I've ever I've ever seen." And for me as a guitar head, that was you know, I'd, I'd heard songs here and there, but I'd never really sat down and gone gone deep into any of their albums really. Um, and just like everyone else, I think I was kind of subjected to it from you. <laughs> go away and go away and listen to this. Um, probably about a year ago, I think maybe you started talking to me about it, and um, yeah, like I, I think I've only really listened to um, this album before we started talking about doing this this podcast. And for me, it's it's less it's actually less wild than I thought it was going to be. You know, when I first looked at the cover, when I saw how excited you you were about it, I thought, "Oh no, <laughs> what's it getting me into here?" Yeah. But actually, it's it's actually it's it's a lot milder than I thought it would be. It kind of reminds me a lot of uh, the Moody Blues, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah, so it's 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 it was like a a nice surprise. It was. I am going to give you just a quick factoid, no, on, and then I'm going to ask a, a big question. But the quick little factoid is: this is the second version 
of In the Court of the Crimson King that was recorded. And the first version was recorded with the Moody Blues' producer. I did hear that, yes. And it didn't go very well, so Fripp ended up producing... Well, I think the whole band produced it, didn't it? According to, uh, I think, Ian McDonald, he said that basically they just made Robert Fripp just strum the guitar a bunch and then compressed everything. And I was like, in relation to what this album actually sounds like, I I can't imagine having normal chords at any point. (laughs) That, That blows my mind. But to the point you just made about how not wild this is, I think the first one, we're still in the land of songs because Robert Fripp hadn't come on as the primary songwriter yet he was just the guitarist and in the second album he'll be the primary songwriter and then from then on out he's the guy yeah and you've and you've got such a you know you've got such a strong lead singer here that it's it's only natural that things are gonna work around that voice oh yeah so we'll get to to the one and only greg lake in a little bit but i'm gonna throw this out to all of you so we've now entered we've left the world of psychedelia and we've entered the land of prague so this, for me, is obviously the first prog album, and I know it when I hear it, but what do you guys think makes this the first prog album? Well, um, I guess it's, we've already touched on it. It's, it's the, what Brian said about moving away from blues and entering into the jazz territory. You hear it a bit in some of the, the albums of the year before, but not like this <laughs> it's it's like you have to like really search for any blues references in this one absolutely agree with you ed and brian on that point there's also this great degree of free improvisation that drove a lot of this then i don't i think you could argue was never present in mainstream rock before at all so and it only becomes more and more pronounced as they produce album after album fripp takes over even more extensively, but that that emphasis on free improv being a uh, in in the free improv in the jazz sense, not just jamming like a blues band, but that's where they leave behind really all of their contemporaries. And I, I was going to agree with you on that point that this is by far the most truly improvisational of the prog bands, and it, it, as you rightly point out, they really will go deep into that world. But how do we feel about the soundscape and the lyrical content? Um, I love talking about gear. <laughs> so every time we hear Mellotron, um, I get excited. Um, I didn't know what one was <laughs> like not long ago, and, and now I'm hearing it all over the place. I, I guess because we've been doing a lot of these these albums around the same sort of time. You know, it's a piece of kit that was equi- available at the time. Um, but the more I hear it, the more I realise how good it is and how 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 well it sits in a in a band mix and really elevates a, you know a piece of work like this so yeah you know i like hearing that um the <laughs> robert fripp's approach to guitar equipment um i find quite quite interesting because if you see him today he sits he sits on a little stool and he's got you know, guitar pedals all over the floor in racks behind him. He's still, I think he's still got the Mellotron from the next album. It's like, he's still using it today. And it's just like, he's just built this, this area around him. But if you ask him about, you know, his favorite amps or pedals or something, he'll say, doesn't matter. No matter what I use, I always sound the same. 
Um, so I was there digging, trying to figure out what, what he's using on this album. And to me, it's interesting, but to him, he probably he probably doesn't even know. <laughs> um, he, he always seems to use uh, Gibson Les Pauls, um, 345, um, semi-hollow electric guitar. I may have heard him talking about using a, a Burns Baldwin buzz around, which is, you know, typical British sounding um, guitar fuzz pedal. But again, I don't think it matters with Fripp. I think he, he could use anything. He'd still use it in the same way. Well, and I was going to say, I think what we'll talk about in a little bit is I'm actually surprised by how much acoustic guitar yeah, yeah. His, his, is on this album. Yeah, he, and for how heavy it is. And, and on the next one, like there's there's loads of acoustic yeah. guitar. Um, the, in fact, on the next album, there's a point where my headphones were not working properly. <laughs> so I only got one channel, which was Fripp's acoustic yeah. guitar. I think he was playing this piece where he's literally you know playing these notes that like sound almost out of tune yeah. when you heard them on their own but with the whole band as i was playing with the connection it sounded fine again so that that was that <laughs> yeah. in itself yeah. was really interesting so from a yeah. stereo's perspective what they're doing individually and what it sounds like as a whole piece that you know like they really got their production together there and for, for, for them to really have their production together on the first couple of albums is is impressive. It really is impressive. It still sounds very fresh. Mm. But yeah, like like I say, the, the thing that surprises me about a prog guitarist only using a few bits of gear back then is, is very interesting. It's all in the playing, you know. Well, Ed, Ed the, you make this really interesting point about how simple his guitar rig may have been at least here at the beginning and how little he decides to overcomplicate that but on the flip side of things uh and you might be able to actually you might know about more about this than i do but the mellotron is actually infamous right it's one of the most temperamental unreliable uh just finicky pieces of musical equipment anyone had ever devised so i don't know how much time he had to screw around with this guitar when he may have been <laughs> spending <laughs> an hour plus just trying to set it up for every gig yeah i get i get i get the impression that despite his approach to to the gear he did know what he was doing um i read a passage where he's talking about the um building some kind of circuit to take his his guitar pedals out of the signal chain when they weren't being used because he understood how it was sucking the tone out of his instrument when it when they weren't in use and i think that's today that's quite a commonly understood thing and people buy bits of kit to deal with that but it wasn't then so I think technically he must he must have known what he was doing. It was just maybe like a matter of taste. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was you know he was working on that Mellotron and servicing it a little bit himself and and learning a few bits and bobs from from getting his hands dirty. Well, was he educated in any kind of mechanical or electrical engineering? Because in another life, my God, that's what he should have been doing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair to all of this, they they broke up in short order on their first tour. So I think maybe none of this was fun for them at all. So for me, this is the first prog album because it's kind of extended song forms. They record virtuosic performances. Like I'm sure there was lots of virtuosic bands, but this was the first band to put it down and say, hey, look at this. They recorded their improvisation 
which is actually a pretty big deal, considering that we've heard pretty tightly constructed songs up till this point. They only have five songs on this album, so they're all long songs. And the lyrical content is creepy as all get out. And uh, I think we've had weird, we've had whimsical, like look back on the Pink Floyd album we just did and the Beatles we just did before that. We've definitely had psychedelic lyrics. There is something a little extra about these that points a road to Progville that we're going to be taking from here on out. So this album is absolutely the first Prog. It was it was actually well received. It and then the follow-up in the wake of Poseidon both hit the I think in the top five in the UK charts and top thirty in the US charts, which considering that King Crimson would never hit past thirty again in the rest of their career is pretty amazing. And I think certainly this first album is still fresh and interesting, but still very listenable and accessible. Then we'll compare it to the their second album in the wake of Poseidon, and then we'll discuss what happens to them. But that that all to come later. So is there any other general thoughts we have? I think t- to your point, it being the first, I was looking at you know their contemporaries because obviously yes, and Pink Floyd predate them um, as a band. But I think a lot of what Pink Floyd was doing was more like psychedelic at that you know at this point. I mean, I think metal is really their first true prog rock. That was '71, and then Yes had the had Yes by Yes. But that was like a lot of covers. And then Time of the Word is 70. And then, you know, the Yes album 71, that's when they're really in their, their main prog rock form. Just to that point, so I mentioned Bill Bruford earlier. So he saw them perform 21st Century Schizoid Man at, at the club and just said, oh, my goodness. Yes needs to increase their game, which is then what they did for the Yes album, which we'll talk about later. Brian, continue. And to just to go back to the, the just the general sound of the album, I went down the rabbit hole on the Mellotron and, you know, it, for them, it was actually a relatively new instrument. I mean, I think to us it has, I don't want to say it dated, but it has a vintage feel. Um, you know, Mellotron was first came out in 63, so it's only been around for a few years. You know, if you look at like the Moody Blues, you know, various types of prog rock, pop, you know, it was really the, a defining sound of the 60s and 70s. Totally declined. The original company stopped producing it in the 80s. And then a lot of bands like Oasis and Radiohead in the 90s brought back the popularity, and the original company um, started manufacturing again, and it is still being manufactured to this day. You can get a Mellotron M4000 or Mark IV um, from the original manufacturer. It's hard to figure out what it costs, but because there's a UK, there's like a UK and a US site, but the US site has it for 6,800 US dollars. And if you go to the Facebook page for Street Electronics, there was a post from November uh, 2021 that said John is up to his neck in M4000 orders, services, and restorations. So it sounds like things are going great. Um, and if you want, if, and if you want to learn more, um, their email address is tronbros at aol.com. I am delighted by this. That's amazing. I, I can't believe that it's still. It's still in production by the same people. That's incredible. Frankly, because it's such a pain in the ass instrument, I imagine, if you've got the actual tape loops. But Well, Robert Fripp has one of the most famous quotes about this ever, uh, in that tuning a Mellotron doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> nice. it, it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes it doesn't matter if something's impractical or it doesn't, you know, there's there's a lot of upkeep on it. If it, if it sounds sonically right, for a band then people just want it 
maybe maybe it's one of those you know when you just associate it with albums you love that's why i mean it's it's a period we all love i mean i think anyone who likes rock music starts somewhere with like sergeant peppers or something and you're like ooh that kind of creepy strings but just off sound is so lovely and i think you know actually the corollary now is i think for me 80s music sounds so like harsh and stupid but the weekend and Dua Lipa brought back a lot of the sonic elements of the 80s and put that in their popular music and i think it's just like if you love that it, it's a sound that reminds you of bright colors and fun times and i think for me the mellotron reminds me of psychedelic times that i was not born <laughs> for it takes you to a place blah 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 so tour i to be making this type of music you goddamn right i'd want a mellotron so I'll email John at tronbros at aol.com. <laughs> um. uh, sorry, I learned one. I have one last thing to share on at planetmelotron.com, which looks like a website out of the 90s. But according to it, it was last updated on uh, the 31st of March 20, 2022. So people are still into it. Two of the famous, uh, what the website describes as oddball owners, which I have to share. Uh, one was apparently Princess Margaret had a Mark II. And then my personal favorite oddball owner, Elron Hubbard. And there's a picture of Elron no Hubbard way. with an Elatron. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, you know, I'm legitimately surprised he didn't try and turn that into some sort of treatment methodology in diabetics <laughs> somehow. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, the Mellotron at exactly the right frequency would somehow get your thetans right. <laughs> he looks the type. Quickly enjoy. Oh Jesus Christ, he's working it. <laughs> so we've we have got uh, Ron Hubbard in the Rick Wakeman position, wearing <laughs> wearing what's that? A waistcoat and uh, <laughs> it's like a blue blue velvet polo, <laughs> playing two Mellotrons. So that's what Brian has just showed us. God, what a look! I mean, maybe uh, he could throw down. I mean. I mean, he looks like he's he's handling multiple parts, so... <laughs> oh my god, I, I don't want to derail the podcast, but... Ian, if you, you were saying um, he's in the Rick Wakeman position, I think this photo is even more... Um, <laughs> I don't know, I, I think I'm, we're going to derail this, <laughs> because I could talk about oh, this Jesus forever. Christ. But okay. <laughs> Alright, one last one, like and it. then we're going to actually Whoa. talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, those lapels are the size of his head. Okay, so we have <laughs> L. Ron Hubbard now in a leisure suit playing five Mellotrons. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, he is. Look at him go. Uh, I, I like that there's more than one picture of L. Ron Hubbard playing keys. Oh, dear. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, let's come back from that one. All right, so the final general thing I'll talk about before we talk about these albums is King Crimson had the label of pretension lobbed at them multiple, multiple times. And we've had this debate amongst ourselves. And I'm going to put this to bed now because we've got another 35 episodes of Prog to get through. <laughs> and I want you to all enjoy it without the, without the burden of the label of pretension on your back. So, Ryan, what do you think about... Pretension lobbed at King Crimson and then prog rock in general. Well, I don't think you can escape it. I, I, I cannot fathom 
what the club scene in London would have looked like at that point in the late 60s with these guys being the cool cats in the corner. I, I just, I can't even picture this. <laughs> I, it, it's hard not to fall into that trap. Before this, I mean, how many bands had a dedicated lyricist that didn't do anything else? <laughs> I, I don't... Well, he did the light show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they don't even, and, and King Crimson themselves don't even drop this notion of having someone specialized in something that's arguably non-musical. I, I don't know how you can be less pretentious. I, <laughs> I, I personally love it, but I don't think you can get away from the label. You know, I know, I mean, you, you have some of those things like all the different instruments, the heavy, you know, Mellotron, the kind of that electronic and quote sound since the Mellotron was like mechanical electronic but curious this is more of a question for the group i think one element of that pretentiousness was also the stage shows i mean pink floyd elp yes had giant stage shows did king crimson have a big stage bombastic show like the other bands so they very specifically did not they did have a light show on occasion if i remember correctly but famously and this is a quote from peter sinfeld robert fripp was not a gyrator (laughs) So I think Robert Fripp just Robert Fripp just sat on a stool. Um, <laughs> oh God, damn! There's just yet another good one. So Robert Fripp sat on a stool and just played his guitar, not facing the audience. And when Greg Lake said, "Robert, you look like a mushroom," Robert Fripp said, "The mushroom is a symbol of fertility in many cultures." So <laughs> I'm not sure how visually interesting a King Crimson show was. But I was like, I also feel like imagine all of this stuff going on sonically. And then you also have to watch like, you know, like Ian Anderson tap dance with a flute. (laughs) I'd feel like that would be too much. And I feel like you, as a prog band, you get to pick one, like you play too much music or you, you do too much leotards (laughs) and you just, you, you make your choice. Fripp himself, sure, maybe he wants to, to sit in the corner there and uh, noodle on. But King Crimson, they, as much as you want to say it, they're not immune to it. They don't really do it during this iteration of themselves, but I'm thinking of later when J.B. Muir comes to join the band. He's known for running around stage, doing lots of non-musical things, banging on pots and pans, yeah. smashing blood capsules on himself. They're not, they're not immune to this. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Prague has a lot of personalities, for the most part, including King Crimson, I think it was a bunch of music nerds who couldn't have done anything else. And I think to that point, you're only pretentious if you're pretending. And I think they were just who they were. I think the one and only really, really big exception to this is Greg Lake. And Greg Lake, as we'll talk about in later episodes, he loved himself a fur coat. He loved himself a Persian rug. He loved himself a spa trip in Japan. Then again, I guess he is who he is. Yeah. And like like you say, it's it's you know, if someone is putting up a pretense, then yeah, that's pretentious, yep. but that's just the guy. <laughs> that's just the guy. And you know, I think um yeah, if people are doing something musically in order to be perceived in a certain way, then yeah, they're being pretentious. But I don't, I don't feel that. I feel like these, you know, this is just the way they play. It's just what turns them on. That's that's just how they, how they get down. Simple as that. How they are. Yeah. And I was gonna say, I think this was within them. They just needed to express this weird music. 
I hope we have avoided this as a as a friend group of of prog lovers, but I could definitely see this being a type of music that's very very prone to gatekeeping, and like you don't really understand prog mm. unless you <laughs> like islands or lizard, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I could imagine this being a very gatekeeping type of genre. So my my message to you, whoever's out there listening, is we want you all. And we hope that you enjoy this music and we don't care who you are and that you probably won't like the rest of it. (laughs) I was going to say, that sounds like the least prog thing anyone's ever said. (laughs) I mean, people better not be gatekeeping with prog rock. There's no one on the other side of the gate. I mean, I don't think think we're beating back people to come in. I mean, (laughs) no, I should say we need you. It's actually pretty lonely in here. (laughs) <laughs> in fact, we've left the gate open for a while. Just no one showed up. <laughs> um, okay. So my one and only final point about this album, and I guess early King Crimson in general, let's take our minds back to 1969. This, I feel like, would have been very intense music. As in, like, I think the reason this became the first of a new genre is actually... Man, this must have been really unusual to hear. Because I was trying to think about what else was going on in 1969. And I guess, like, the Beatles had had entered their soulful, groovy phase. I guess there must have been a bunch of, like, post-Beatles bands kind of also being groovy. And this is aggressive as all get out. And improvisational as all get out. With these creepy, creepy kind of mysterious lyrics. So I feel like this would have been an, an, a very exciting album, almost punkish. And with that, <laughs> we start with the first album in the Court of the Crimson King, and we start with 21st Century Schizoid Man. And this is a good as place as any to talk about the album cover, which features the 21st Century Schizoid Man. The album cover was painted by Barry Godber, a computer programmer friend of uh, Greg Sinfield's. And he also did the interior cover, which features a moon with fangs, which is King Crimson himself. So he did both of these. I had never actually seen the interior picture till till researching this podcast. It's pretty pretty wild. Yeah, these these colors with their like the blues and the reds and like just the really close up screaming face. Again, this is uh, this is not Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> I know the guy who painted it was literally. That's his own face in the mirror, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a self-portrait. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, I, I, it takes a certain kind. I mean, I think we all have to remember what computer programmer would have meant in 1969. And Like down in the basement with his, <laughs> his little punch cards. <laughs> but, there's, but there's nothing on there, right? There's nothing. There's no name of the band. There's no name of the album. There's nothing... You know that idea that someone's got a got a route into yeah. it to find out what's going on, and yeah, you're kind of drawn in. Oh uh, yeah, if you see that on the shelf at the record store, that's gonna get your attention immediately. And the question is gonna be, <laughs> yeah. what in blazes is that? <laughs> and what in blazes is this? So this song, Twenty First Century Schizo Man, is Peter Sinfeld's rhapsody about. He says the Vietnam War, but in a general sense about the the manic-inducing life of being a 21st century schizoid man. 
and then they brought it to life with this this insane riff. The I was going to say the the lyrics themselves are somewhat schizophrenic in, in how how they're presented, and I can you know imagine Peterson feel left to his own devices trying to to write these things, but yeah. ends up being heard in places you really would not expect later too because. Um, I, I know I've made uh, I know I've made references to this in other episodes, and Ian, you actually uh, might be more apropos than you think by calling this somewhat proto-punk, because later on uh, in the 1990s, um, our friend uh, Brett Gurowitz of Bad Religion names a record label after Epitaph, which is actually another track from here, but then also makes uh, an homage to the song uh, in the their 1990 oh god what year uh 21st century digital boy so a skate punk band from the 1990s forms a record label names it after a king crimson song and and make makes reference to these lyrics some 30 odd years later i wonder how many people within their genre got that Oh my god, I, I can't even <laughs> What imagine. a deep cut. <laughs> well, I think, so we'll talk about this in a future King Crimson episode, but one of Kurt Cobain's favorite albums will be King Crimson's Red. Mm. And I do actually wonder if because this album was popular, it's still good, it's still kind of aggressive and interesting, but it was never commercially successful, <laughs> means that... <laughs> The world of skate punk was allowed to enjoy it because it's not Hall and Oates. <laughs> but we love all of you yacht rockers and skate punkers. According to, to Wikipedia, some people consider this the group's uh, King Crimson's signature song as the introduction to prog rock. Is this prog rock signature song? If not this song, I really like. We'll we'll talk about Roundabout in a future episode. By yes, but it's got to be this or Roundabout, and I think both of them have crazy psychedelic lyrics or fantastical lyrics, and then very intricate instrumentation, and the two probably the two most signature voices of prog rock, Greg Lake in King Crimson and John Anderson of Yes. So I'd say those two would for me vie to be the most proggy of the prog songs i think that's a great question um that is a great question i i think it's for me the one track that really stands out in this one is the title track as being proggy the most proggy bit of the album um so that's the one that comes to mind now but yeah that's that's really that's a really interesting idea isn't it signature song of the most proggiest band (laughs) Well, if you think about the way it, it just jumps on the stage at you, uh, you immediately you get horns, you get you get jazz drumming, which arguably, uh, Ian, you made an interesting comment there about how, you don't know how they recorded it to get it to sound so precise, but it's a forebear to what uh, almost you start to hear in like the speed metal of the two thousands and that kind of drum work. Like it's it's starting here. So if you think about how shocking and strange this must have been at the time, then yeah, I, I could see this being like, welcome to Prague, everyone buckle up. <laughs> you know, it's funny to think about the song as a Vietnam protest song, because I, the way my brain works is I, I don't really follow lyrics very well when I'm just listening to music. And I've heard the song a ton of times and I was researching the podcast and I read like, Oh, this is a protest against Vietnam. And I was thinking, what? 
And then as I'm listening to the song again, reading the lyrics, I totally missed the line, politicians, funeral power, innocence, rape by napalm fire. I'm like, oh, got it. <laughs> but like when we think about like Vietnam protest music, you have, you know, fortunate son for what it's worth. Like, why, why isn't this song playing when we watch Vietnam movies? Like as the helicopters come in, just all the jazz and just. <laughs> Maybe they will now. Uh, it's just the, it's just not the friendly face of the protest the same way Strawberry Alarm Clock was. I don't know. <laughs> Are there any other Prague protest songs? Why, Brian? I'm so glad you asked. So the other the other famous Prague protest song. So we'll actually we'll talk about three in future episodes. But we have I've seen all good people, which is about Vietnam. Oh, yours is no disgrace, which is about Vietnam. Really. And then uh, we have got Long Distance Runaround. What? <laughs> long Distance Runaround, which is about the Kent, Ohio shootings. So uh, it was uh, that and Neil Young's Ohio. Oh, hold on. <laughs> hold on. Ian, you've already been completely Let's... full of it once this episode. I No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about this in a future episode. I'm going to hold off until we talk about Yes is Fragile. But yes. Put that in the back of your minds that we'll be talking about Yes's extensive combination of Vietnam protest songs and lyrics about bluebirds. So we change gears pretty hard and we come to I Talk to the Wind, a lovely, delicate jazz tune. And I think for me, that's what makes this album so delightful is that there's only five songs and we just go dark light, dark light dark so we've just had our minds rocked with with rapid fire jazz drumming and now we just chill with some flute i have nothing much to say about the song except that i love it and it goes down smooth you do need that spoonful of sugar to make the six over four from the previous song go down (laughs) down well (laughs) yeah yeah you know it to me it's it is kind of reminiscent of the midi blues you know it's it's got that kind of Justin Hayward vibe about it. Um, the, yeah. the guitar's really nice. The the flute's pretty. Like it's it's just a nice nice piece of music. I think the only other bit of note here, and we'll talk about his voice in a little bit, and his personality in a little bit. But Greg Lake shares harmony vocals with Ian McDonald for this one, and Greg does not feel like a sharer to me. But this album actually has like five different faces of his voice almost and this is just another one and he actually i think he nails the softness which is surprising for what's going to come for the rest of his career do you remember just as a side note so back in the day we tried to play basically tried to play this album all the way through and our guitarist at the time threw an absolute hissy fit every time (laughs) (laughs) i actually imagine it must have been jarring even for them where they've just done like this crazy jazz explosion and then flutes but uh, what are you well to do? be to be fair he hated all of it but <laughs> <laughs> it stands out as a song that could have been written by a different band it was li- li- <laughs> oh was it oh yeah that's right it's from their previous so what gives this album its very listenable quality relative to the rest of King Crimson, is that this will be a very Ian McDonald affair. Mm. 
Robert Fripp hadn't become the primary songwriter yet. So these are all very melodic songs and very beautiful songs. So that could have been the sound of King Crimson. Yes, and then we were robbed of that and given jazz metal instead. (laughs) Cool. For those who really enjoyed this song, Ian McDonald and Michael Giles would go on to form McDonald and Giles and do an album that was more like this. So for those who enjoyed this, there is an album for you. So we come then to Epitaph, which is Peter Sinfeld's Meditation on Nuclear War and Greg Lake's Apotheosis. So this is where the Mellotron really kicks in full full gear. And I guess I'll just start with Greg Lake's voice. So we'll get into it more when we talk about ELP, the band he would go on to form. But what, what do we feel about Greg Lake's voice? What does it bring to this project? This is, I think, where he starts to get into that almost stage persona where, you know, ELP, we, we all talked about uh, how it starts to almost feel like something that could be on a Broadway stage. And that quality was to his voice. Like, I think it starts here. Albeit like, I mean, it'd be unintentionally hilarious to have this song as part of any sort of stage musical. But, uh, (laughs) I think the, I mean, it's, it's absolutely part of a, not okay. Yes. Stage musical would be ridiculous, but as part of a epic arena stage show. Oh, baby. And actually, uh, we'll probably talk about this further in in ELP episodes, but I think this is one as well where um, this would absolutely blow up off a stage. Like, they would only be playing small clubs at this stage in their career, and I can't imagine this song in the context of a small club. And I feel like it's so epic. This is the high that Greg Lake will chase for the rest of his career. (laughs) He'll chase that dragon forever. (laughs) He chases that dragon forever. And this is the moment where, like, I feel like swap out Mellotron for Soaring Organ and you have ELP. But this, like, swelling oomph in the background. And then Greg Lake just singing his little choir boy heart out in the middle there. What a moment. Yeah, he's got an, he's got such an epic voice, isn't he? And, and actually, the song is so epic. I was hard-pressed to think of another band that would do this again. I feel like Muse must have done this. Like, swap out Mellotron for Bombastic Synth, and you must have Muse somewhere. But, like, it's such an unabashedly epic song. I, I love this song. I, I wish, to be honest, I wish more ELP was like this, because um, I think it's, it's a great demonstration of Greg Lake's vocals and, and what's possible. Also, you know, it's, it's very much the Mellotron song. Uh, and it's a great way to end uh, because this is the first. Sorry, this is the last song on uh, side one of the album. So this is kind of the end before you flip it over. Yeah, it's always it's always good to to take that into context when you're listening to records. Uh, records, you know what what are you doing before you walk over to the to record player to flip that over? That natural break, um, and yeah, it's when you when you think about this album from that perspective. It's actually a really well put together journey that you're taking on. You know, the idea of an album in in the UK is a bit weird still. In yeah. America, people are making albums, but in the UK, people are still kind of, they, they still got the idea of single records. Maybe this is um, the shift after Sgt. Pepper's, 
was that it was okay to do albums. People would buy four albums and not just the single. You, you could argue that that literally is what prog is. Yeah. You know, it's it's that shift from singles to albums and people learning how to learning how to actually make yeah. an album. Um, and I think this is an example of someone who's nailed it. Well, I have a question for those who probably know this better than I do. This is part of history I'm kind of ignorant of. But so at this point in the U.S., FM radio is where you can go to hear the far out weird stuff and uh, some things way more experimental, I suppose, at least by those standards. But did that really have the same sort of format and connotation in the UK? Did FM radio really mean the same thing over there? Oh, God, no. So in the UK, everything was kind of it was kind of centralised. So you, you, what you did have is you had people operating pirate radio. Right. And there's, like, there's the famous radio, Caroline, which was um, broadcast off a, off a boat. Off, so it, was, it wasn't on the UK mainland, so they, they were able to play what they wanted. Um, so that's something worth, worth looking into. But for the for mainland listeners... It, it's, the, it's the Biebs and nothing else. It was only sea shanties, by the way. Basically, yeah. It was... It was not regulated, but, but you know, it was it was tame, and and um, there was a schedule people stuck to, and that that was it. You know, we were, yeah, fed gruel basically. Yeah, because I guess you spoke. You don't have people like John Peel doing their thing until a little bit later, right? As far well, as DJs he, go, he, yeah. he he's he's someone. I think he was on Radio Caroline actually, but um, I'm not, I'm not too sure on that. But yeah, it, it kind of explains why music evolved the way it did in the UK you know people were like really hungry to hear something different so they were getting they were getting these blues records straight off the boat that were not being sold in America and being sold in the UK instead like people that you know so that's kind of where that British blues thing comes from you know people being starved of anything interesting basically um Oh, and then, yeah, and then you start, you get the mob culture who loves their American R and B and American blues, and so yeah. So you've just experienced Epitaph. We've taken you to the height of emotion, and then we flip the album to Moonchild. <laughs> so I will say the one thing I am glad that all five songs have kind of a different vibe to them. I would say they did a pretty good job of making each of these songs feel different. And as I said before, I think Greg gets to sing differently. I absolutely love the first three minutes of the song. And then as everyone who's heard the song will know, it devolves for another nine minutes into atmospheric jams. Here comes the free improv. (laughs) Here comes that sweet, sweet free improv. Now, I will not and cannot defend the subsequent eight minutes i do love the first minute of the jamming because there's a little bit of like vibraphone Mm -hmm. a little bit of doodly doo guitars and it really like you've had this pretty cool little song and then it just melts into this and i actually would love if they just had this beautiful little outro of vibes and guitar fading away into the next song on this album but they don't and they (laughs) give us eight more minutes of pure noodling i think this is where uh Ian, to take it back to your previous comments about pretension, this is this is where it goes off because I, maybe maybe I'll try and define it here as self indulgence. 
Because if you can imagine yes. this, though, this our, our, our little eight minutes of uh, tinkling and sprinkling, like, that was probably really fun if you were them. Yeah. <laughs> fun for no one else. <laughs> well, I think, I forget who said this, but the person holding the drill is the only person not annoyed by it. <laughs> That's yeah. perfect. It's uh, absolutely perfect. <laughs> and I, I feel like that... Very much the vibraphone on this. <laughs> yeah, that that is so true. However, if if people didn't do that, you know, if they censored themselves and were thinking about, you know, who's listening, we wouldn't have a load of other stuff. I think you know it's really important that yeah. they are that free and they are that able to just go, you know, check this out. It's part and parcel of, of who they are, isn't it? I mean, this brings up a, a thing we will talk about later on Pink Floyd's metal with the both the, the track of the blues dog and the middle of their epic piece, Echoes. And we'll talk about it on that episode. But uh, wild studio experimentation being recorded and then pressed to acetate, uh, for me, is a ludicrous waste of everyone's time. <laughs> and I'm really in love with people experimenting in the studio on stage whatever i love that king crimson took us to the edge of of like sonic delights uh they didn't need to record it (laughs) and and i will say there's lots of times where they do improvise and lots of moments where they improvise where i'm glad they did and we'll talk about this on the next album they uh they add a lot of nonsense in a good way to their songs, a lot of noise and dissonance and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but for this, they just noodle and then noodle and then noodle. How'd you know that for sure? That might have been crafted that way. Well, I mean, good for them. <laughs> like, <Fair enough. laughs> um, so for those joining us on this prog journey, just skip it after three minutes. You you are not missing anything. I give you that permission. Although the, the, it's 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 uh, influence is, is ever reaching because it's another fan, fun little fact. Uh, we, we may all remember the rapper Mims for his prog hit. Uh, this is why I'm hot. He actually samples this song. Really? Not in that one. You, you'll have to look up the track "Doctor Doctor," but there's there's a theme here, uh, and I think it's hip hop loves King Crimson. <laughs> I don't know how else to interpret this. <laughs> so we haven't discussed it uh, until now but every song on this album other than epitaph has um like sections or like so, so the first is the dream which is the, i think the section i really like i think most of it sounds like we like the first three minutes and then the illusion is just the, the improv nonsense the doodling but i, I it is kind of nice because when i really broke it up when i was researching this or getting ready for this podcast i, I did actually really end up liking that first couple sections of moonchild uh, I was disappointed to learn this was not released as a single. Normally, I hate when studios meddle and ruin, you know, prog rock songs. This this would be the one where I'd yeah. love if they're just like, let's just cut that out, and this would be because <laughs> this, this is the like this could be the a good B side to 21st Century Schizoid Man or something like that. But there was only one single, and it was uh, in the Court of the Crimson King. Although confusingly. In the 76, there was a compilation album called A Young Person's Guide to King Crimson, which I'm guessing was ironic even then. Um, <laughs> and, the, and then the single from that was Epitaph, strangely enough. 
And the B-side was 21st Century Schizoid Man, which was a very interesting choice, if you think about it. I, I remember when I first heard this record thinking that there were more tracks on here than there actually are. So I must have zoned out and chopped chopped some of them up. Somewhere in the nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> two, two things. When I first heard Moonchild, I actually was wondering if this was it had a any relation to the Aleister Crowley novel called Moonchild. So Crowley wrote novels in addition to his magical guides, uh, but I could not confirm any connection. Second is this song was actually used in a movie called Buffalo 66, directed by the somewhat infamous Vincent Gallo. And there is a, a scene in the movie where Christina Ricci tap dances in a bowling alley to this song. Which, when I heard that, I was like, "This is gonna be, <laughs> this is gonna be a disaster," and it kind of works. It kind of works. You'll, I'll I'll send the link out later. But wait, uh. do they add? Do they add in? <laughs> Jesus Christ! Because I'm imagining the tapping would be like once every, <laughs> like once every second. Like it's not that fast of a song. <laughs> yeah, but if you if you picture her. Just uh, dresses Wednesday Adams. It, it works. Yeah, just shuffling. <laughs> I mean, I it, it, I would describe it as Vincent Gallo doing his best, like David Lynch impression. I've never seen the movie. I'll be perfectly honest. I just watched this this scene. It's on YouTube. But I'm telling you, there's something about it that works. I don't know the context of the scene. I don't know anything about the movie. <laughs> um, but this, it works. It's hard to describe. But look at look it up on Buffalo '66 Moonchild. It's very easy to find. And and what was the Aleister Crowley factoid you had there? Oh, I was wondering, well, Aleister Crowley wrote a novel, like a fictional novel called Moonchild. And I was wondering if there's any relation ah, to uh, to this album, but I could not confirm or, or deny that. Because I was going to say, they, they do write another song that's based on his book, Anal Magic. <laughs> <laughs> was that on Red? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> Gives a whole new meaning to A-side. <laughs> or flipping the record over. <laughs> I remember that ELO song. Mr. Brown Eye. Okay. Fabulous. Okay. Wonderful. Children. <laughs> Children. That's so bad. Okay. So, <laughs> so, we come then to the next song, In the Court of the Crimson King. Goddamn, what a way to end an album. I, I think it's the spiritual spiritual companion to Epitaph. Like, it's just a big old mellotron spooky ballad. Peter Sinfeld at his best. There's all sorts of ooky spooky characters dancing around in the court uh i don't actually have much to say about this it's just a great song it's it's like when i first heard it i was like i've heard this before and i definitely hadn't it's i don't know it just it just tickles the senses in all the right ways i I really like this one um and for me it's i don't know it's 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 the standout for me is that the this is the this just sounds like them you know this this is in my head, this is what they sound like. Yeah, it's cool. We like it. And I feel like that's why this is the prog album, is we've had like some fast jazz, we've had some big old Mellotrons, and now we've got some 
ooky spooky, fantastical creepiness. We've got a, a taste of everything. Any other thoughts about this, the first album ever of Prague? Just that, that it, it was completely not what I expected. I was, I, I genuinely thought this was going to be crazy, hard to listen to, over the top. It is over the top, but it is done. It is done in a classy way. I think it's very. It is very easy to listen to. You can, you know, you can put this on and do the washing up. It's it's fine. It's it's just pleasant, and I can see why they were you know trusted to go on and produce other things that, and i think and i think yeah. you know genuinely that that is uncommon to trust a band to to just go off and produce their own stuff at, well at that time it was anyway um and i think they 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 produced something that you know they can be proud of so we're going to pause there at the end of in the court of the crimson king I have been your host, Ian Prize, and this has been A Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. Do find us on Instagram at progfrogpod. If you have any longer thoughts, queries, opinions, we are at helloprogfrog at gmail.com. But next week, we will rejoin King Crimson with their follow-up album, In the Wake of Poseidon. See you then. See you then.